Our guest today is Berkeley professor and part-time research scientist director at Meta, Jitendra Malik. Jitendra has been at the forefront of computer vision research for multiple decades. He has mentored over 70 PhD students and postdocs. Many have gone on to the top industry research labs, as well as have become professors at MIT, Berkeley, Carnegie Mellon, Caltech, Cornell, and so forth. Jitendra's works have been cited over 200,000 times, making him one of the most highly cited researchers across all engineering disciplines. Notably, he was awarded the Longe Higgins Prize in 2007 and 2008, and the Helmholtz Prize twice in 2015 for contributions that have stood the test of time, awarded to papers after 10 years of publication. Jitendra has been elected into the National Academy of Engineering into the National Academy of Sciences and into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. With my personal outsider-in view on computer vision, I've always seen Jitendra as the flag bearer of the computer vision community, both through a wide range of algorithmic contributions, as well as through making computer vision into a more benchmark-driven discipline, which dramatically accelerated the entire field. Lately, Jitendra has turned his attention to the problem of achieving more human-like intelligence, a quest in which robotics research has become central, something I'm, of course, particularly excited about. Chitendra, so great to have you here with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. I'm really looking forward to our chat, Chitendra. But before diving into today's conversation, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Index Ventures and Weights and Biases. Index Ventures is a venture capital firm that invests in exceptional entrepreneurs across all stages, from seed to IPO. With offices in San Francisco, New York, and London, the firm backs founders across a variety of verticals, including AI, SaaS, FinTech, security, gaming, and consumer. On a personal note, Index is an investor in Covariant, and I couldn't recommend them any higher. Weights and Biases is an ML ops platform that helps you train better models faster with experiment tracking, model and dataset versioning, and model management. They are used by OpenAI, NVIDIA, and almost every lab releasing a large model. In fact, many, if not all of my students at Berkeley and colleagues at Covariant are big users of weights and biases. Chitendra, let's dive into our conversation here. ChatGPT and other large language models are all the rage right now. And of course, we have a lot to be proud of with Berkeley graduate John Schulman being at the center of these efforts at OpenAI. But despite all the excitement, in your recent talks, you've made it very clear that today's AI is still very, very limited compared to human intelligence. Can you say a bit more about your thinking here? Certainly, Peter. To me, it's uh, this is... Uh... Something which has been known, at least in a segment of the AI community for a while, as uh, Morovec's paradox. And you can, we can tie it to the history of intelligence as a whole. So if we think of intelligence as the biological construct, which emerged through evolution, so going back like 550 million years ago when we have the first animals that can move and then they can see, and seeing is important to moving because that's how you get to know where to go to find food, and so on. And then on to, uh, let's say, the last 7 million years when you have the evolution of hominids from other primates. 
And there is this uh, very nice evolutionary data on, from fossils, which is that the evolution of the brain followed the evolution of the hand as an opposable hand with a thumb, which is opposable. And it, this comes after we became bipedal. We could started to walk on two feet, so the hand was free to build tools and manipulate objects. And then the opposable thumb helped us. And then, of course, tool making led to humans getting an advantage over other species, even though they are, as such, quite small and frail compared to many other animals. And then, of course, we have the emergence of language. My rough calculation is something like this. If you think of all of evolutionary history as like 24 hours, then language is the last two or three minutes. And language, symbolic thinking, and many of the things that we associate with sophisticated uh, reasoning. In a sense, it's remarkable that GPT-4 can do like at the 90% level in a law exam or in various tests or various sorts. I mean, this is incredible. And from the perspective of the general public, this is a sign of great intelligence. I would like to connect this back to, in fact, achievements of AI even 20 years ago when we had the first programs that could beat humans at chess. Like I think that's in the late 90s. And then, of course, we had the deep mind work where they showed that they could, their programs could beat humans at Go. And these are remarkable. And to the general public, performance at these games is the ultimate achievement in intelligence. And it is remarkable. I'm not trying to downgrade that accomplishment. But to me, all the stuff which precedes that kind of level of accomplishment is equally important. And this includes basic sensory motor competence, the ability to see, the ability to move, the ability to manipulate objects, the ability to plan, and so on. That's where I am. And I feel that we will not have conquered intelligence until we have uh, we have conquered all those aspects of uh, intelligence as well. I have a lot of follow-up questions here, Jatendra. <laughs> so first, you said something that really stood out to me. The development of the brain followed the development of the hand. What does that mean when, when you talk about development of the brain? Did our skulls get bigger as a species? Did new regions emerge that have different capabilities? What exactly happened? I mean, the fossil data is about the size of the skull and there's data on the hand. So what we have are fossils which people have found which are correspond to the structure of the hand. So in the fossil record, we can get an idea of that. And we can get a sense of the the volume of the cavity of the of the head in which the brain is. And so we can use those to to connect up. What the soft tissue inside the brain is never preserved in these fossils. We can't answer some very specific questions. But there was this debate which actually goes back to Greek philosophy, which is is because we are intelligent that we can manipulate objects well, or is it because we manipulate objects well that we may became intelligent? And there's a quote of that I like from a Greek philosopher called Anaxagoras, which is that it is because of his hand that man is the most intelligent of other animals. So that could be like a debate, right? But from the fossil evidence, we actually know the sequencing which came first. And it appears to follow the, the order where the, the development of the hand led to the development of the brain in some ways. Because that bigger brain could exploit that. Now, I'm thinking back, you know, back back in the early days, 
you think about human life, it wasn't nearly as complex in many ways as today's life is. There was much less to, to navigate. And as I understand what you're saying is that you'd like to first see if we can develop an intelligence that's capable of doing those things, that has the basic abilities of, let's say, chasing other animals or evading other animals or finding things in the wild, helping other humans do things. And that that is somehow, it's clearly missing today. But I'm curious about, do you think that doing that will also make language models better? Will the language models become more robust, less brittle, if there is a foundation of physical interaction abilities? That's that's a great question. And to some extent, it's an experimental question, which over time, our field will answer. But let me tell you my bias on this. So if we take a developmental life, so the life of a child, so the early stage of a child is very much a sensory motor stage. The child is playing around with objects, learning to crawl, then learning to walk. And of course, the child is being also provided linguistic input from the parents and or other caregivers. But that linguistic input is very grounded, right? The mother may say, give me the ball. And there is a very clear object in front, which the child knows is the ball. And then the word give has a very clear meaning, referent in terms of an action and so forth, right? So the early words that a child acquires are very grounded in sensory motor experience. They evoke the word ball evokes a visual impression. It also evokes a motor impression. I, I see a ball and I feel like throwing it. I mean, this is what Gibson called affordances. A chair. A chair has a visual imagery and a chair is, it sort of tells me how to sit down. So there's a motor action. Now, the early words in a child's vocabulary are of this nature and then the child acquires these words and it, they the child acquires verb, you know, subject, verb, object, triplets, and so forth. And this is the beginning of language. And then it gets more elaborate. Now, later on, the child goes to school and starts reading books. And then in the books, there are all these beautiful sentences and text. And there are words like justice and peace and fairness. And many of those words, in fact, acquire their meaning in context. And I don't necessarily have a very mental, immediate, visual picture of what fairness is. But I do have that concept and it is related to other concepts. Now, the kind of learning we are doing at that stage, we don't go around looking up the meanings of individual words and dictionaries. We read and we acquire meaning by context. And this is a pretty close to what's happening inside these language models like GPT-3 and GPT-4. Okay, there's a word which is deleted. You try to predict that from the context. So I think it that process is fairly close to the process of how we acquire knowledge when we read books as humans, uh, you know, throughout our schooling and throughout life, if you will. But there was that earlier stage, right, which was very directly grounded. Now, for a grown adult, maybe... 80% of their vocabulary was acquired through these words whose meaning was captured in context. But I'm arguing that that 20% came first and is also very important. And what we need to do for, I think, the full development of intelligence is to sort of capture that. And language models which are not grounded will miss out on this, uh, this aspect. Now, I don't view this as a fundamental failing 
because clearly, uh, I mean, there are now uh, models that people are developing, which are vision and language. You have these multimodal models and so forth. I mean, these are coming out from places like Google and uh, Meta and so on. And I think that's in the right direction. But in my mind, all of these need to be there. Now, just research brainstorming almost, they could come in either order, maybe. In humans, the grounding comes first. A basic ground vocabulary comes first. What we see in some of the research that's happening is people just take the large language models and hope to later attach to it grounding, which for humans would probably not be practical. Not clear how humans would learn in that order. But it, it is possible, maybe. I don't know. I'm curious about your take. Is it possible that AI could be built that way? Language model first, and then the grounding next? Or do you have a strong belief it should be first ground the basic vocabulary and then expand from there? Yeah, I don't have hard scientific evidence on this. So this is a question of your one's belief and judgment call. So I am of the grounding first school, but I'm willing to be proved wrong. So I think of it this way. Let me give sort of the slightly speculative evidence in favor of my beliefs, which is that many of the words in language are evolved by as metaphors. So there is, we, we talk about climbing the ladder of success, you know, right? So we talk, we use the, the spatio-temporal world, the world of movement, movement of objects, movement of agents, agents causing things, causing something to happen to an object and so on. That is very much something on which the metaphors from that are very much central to language. George Lakoff, who is a linguist at Berkeley, I mean, he's written books on this topic, sort of emphasizing the importance of metaphor for language. And he was doing this essentially to counter Chomsky, who had a much more formalistic grammar type approach, that language and usage is built up with this laddering of a metaphor. And uh, so in that sense, that would essentially argue to me that it might be easier to build language that way. We also know that we can build skills uh, without language because uh, certainly crows have intelligent behavior and you know gorillas and chimpanzees have intelligent behavior. So the building of motor skills, right? The ability to open a door handle, right? The ability to insert a peg into a hole, the ability to thread a needle. I mean, these don't, fundamentally, they, these don't require language. So the development of that as a purely scientific matter, should proceed without needing the layering of language. But time will tell. So I'm betting my scientific career on the physical intelligence first, followed by language. But we should all try our, our favorite approaches and then we'll know what works. That definitely resonates with me, but I'm willing to hedge my bets that <laughs> just like you, that the other possibilities is certainly not to be ruled out at this point. One of the things you said in a recent talk, Chitendra, is that the big challenges ahead of us, or at least many of the big challenges ahead of us in artificial intelligence are essentially what a child learns, acquires before age five. Can you say a bit more about that? Yes, certainly. And these are essentially challenges of sensory motor coordination, if you will. So these are the ability of a child to manipulate objects, to pick up objects, to recognize objects, to throw balls, to uh, assemble Lego pieces together. All of these are, are they, they're not easy. And we think of them as easy because as adults, we can do them easily. 
But if you observe your child at the age of two and three, you will find that they have to do an enormous amount of practice for this. Turns out that, I mean, there is data on this because our colleagues in psychology are studying how children acquire these abilities. And for example, uh, Karen Adolf at uh, NYU, she has studied how children learn to walk. And she did it in a way where she was trying to be as ecologically valid as possible, observe children in a more natural setting. And then it turns out that they just fall a lot. That's part of the, the process of learning to walk. They fall a lot. It doesn't hurt them so much because their bodies are soft. There's a lot of fat. They're relatively short. So the center of gravity is low. So the fall is not too big. And they somehow just get up and start trying again. And she has these numbers on how many falls it is. And it's it's quite a lot. And similarly, the attempt to try to manipulate objects. So the children seem to be just trying to do various activities which are of interest to them and and acquire these these skills. I almost think of the age, this, you, you mentioned the age five. I think that age five is actually set by this because you can't send a child to school to start to learn to write if they cannot hold a pencil and manipulate it. So fine motor control has to come to a certain threshold level of capability before you subject a child to the discipline of learning to write. So in fact, that five threshold that you picked is actually related to the acquisition of certain expertise. And of course, it's not just sensory motor. There is also social expertise. Children acquire the ability to they develop models of other agents, their caregivers, other children. They figure out that they have goals. They learn how to work with mutual attention. So there is a lot of sophisticated capabilities that have been acquired by age five. One thing here really resonates, especially to Tender, you said the kids fall very often. It actually takes a long time to learn to learn things for them, right? And as you know, I became a dad not too long ago, and people will ask me, um, <laughs> you know, is it anything inspiring your research? And my main response has been, I think we're not giving our reinforcement learning agent enough rollouts. Um, because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these tasks yeah. that seem simple to us, as you said, actually take a long time to acquire. And we might just be too impatient in terms of how many rollouts we give to our agents to acquire these foundational skills that then other things can be built on top of. Now, your research has changed quite a bit as a concept. I want to get to computer vision later because that's where you spend most of your time until very recently. But now you're spending a lot of time on robotics, robot learning. What are you working on right now? What are you most excited about? The high-level problems that I'm most interested in is what I would call a skill acquisition. And I'm using the term skill as some kind of sensory motor behavior. So what are, let me explain that with examples. So the ability to walk is a skill. The ability to crawl on four legs is a skill. The ability to twirl an object in your hand is a skill. The ability to throw a ball is a skill. The ability to catch a ball is a skill. The ability to, you know, slice an apple is a skill. So what does a skill include? A skill includes sensory aspect. So the use of vision, but also touch, also proprioception. All of these uh, are, are important for driving the action. And then there is some physical transformation that happens. An object state is changed or an object is sliced or what have you. So to me, that's 
how I think I think of it as the central problem. And I think that scales, we have some atomic scales and then we combine them to produce more complex scales and then ever more complex scales and so forth. And as grown-ups, we sort of have this repertoire with us. And, and therefore, now we can learn a fairly complex task. Like suppose you are hired by a company to become a washing machine repair person, right? You'll have to learn some specifics. But you start with a set of basic skills which all humans have. Or another example might be driving. As a, like as a teenager, at 16, you learn to drive. Well, you learn to drive in like 10, 15, 20 hours of driving. But that's concealing a lot of stuff because it builds on skills that you acquired between 0 to 16. So, okay, so that's the, that's the high-level thing. I mean, that's what my research agenda is. I feel it's about how to acquire skills. And then, obviously, we can think of it as a meta problem, which is I want to acquire specific skills for robots, and then I want to have a methodology such that the next skill I acquire, I can do it more quickly and more efficiently. And in our group, the one we picked on first was uh, walking. And there was a reason for that. First of all, walking is something which everyone can do. I mean, and walking on two legs, walking on four legs. I mean, both versions of the problem are interesting. It's obviously common in uh, biology because it's connected to movement and movement is important. And it's a problem which has been uh, studied in robotics for decades. I mean, Boston Dynamics videos are seen by millions of people, but they approach the problem in a more classical control design sort of a way. So the challenge here was how do we approach it in a learning framework and paying a lot of attention to sensory inputs. So I feel that when uh, we got into this problem, those were the two angles that we were bringing in, which are not, shall we say, standard issue. I, I sort of thought, okay, there's a developmental story for human babies, so therefore there has to be a learning story which, which should work for robotics. And then, as a person who has spent most of his career in vision, I felt that sensing has to be there from get-go. Don't think of sensing as something which you just add later or you or you do it and then you you get some clean uh, state and then you throw it over the wall and you hope that will work. It has to be part of the system design from the beginning. So that's how we got into walking. And uh, I, I was also lucky to have uh, very good students and collaborators. Uh, Ashish Kumar was my student. Deepak Patek who was at that time like a postdoc working with me at Meta. And we had a real fun time and we were able to make a lot of progress. Yes, I mean, a ton of progress. You, together with your collaborators, developed this concept of rapid motor adaptation. What is it, rapid motor adaptation, and what is it enabling for these robots to do? Let me maybe first explain the term adaptation. In machine learning, a central concept is generalization. I mean, we made progress in computer vision when we decided that to recognize all chairs we were not going to be able to write down a mathematical definition of a chair, but we would have examples and then somehow the concept, we would give lots of example images and then the system would learn what's a concept of a chair. And that's generalization. I mean, there are many different kinds of chairs, but there, there's something common about all of them. Okay, so I'm, the counterpart of that term generalization is adaptation for me for any motor activity. So when you're walking, 
what you need to do is you need to walk on flat ground you need to walk on stairs you need to walk in sand you need to walk in sort of very slushy mud just after the rains in grass on a hiking trail etc cetera, etc cetera. and we are able to do that if we had like a fixed exactly a fixed program it would not work so well right you want to adapt to the terrain hence the term adaptation now this idea actually connects to something that people in classical control have known about from the 50s and 60s i mean there was field called adaptive control but it was in a slightly different framework where by and large the models were linear and they were assumed to be known and so on and what we are doing in the learning paradigm is something akin to that goal but with much more modern and flexible tools which deep learning provides okay so i've got to the adaptation part which we need to achieve motor adaptation because is the motor action walking is a motor action okay rapid now why rapid well we need to be rapid because the terrain can change very quickly from un- under our feet and you know if you walk and there is something slippery in front of you then you will start to slip but we recover so i mean the time scales are on the order of a second right because you know in walking a gait cycle is on the order of a second and you if you take a misstep you stumble and you recover that should take on that order as well if it takes 10 seconds it's no good you'll have fallen down and you could hurt yourself badly and sadly this happens right i mean old people falling is a major health uh, crisis really that's why our goal was rapid motor adaptation so adaptation on the scale of like a second or less which enables you to recover without severe fall or damage and now then it comes down to how do we achieve it and for achieving it it's really about changing how you are walking so walking here means the commands you issue to the motors of the different joints in the different legs in a way that adapts to the terrain sand hard ground slush and uh, what we developed was a technique for very rapidly inferring some aspects of the terrain and changing our behavior accordingly and this is what we call rapid motor adaptation or rma is the abbreviation for that and it's based on a very simple idea the idea is that if i issue the same commands to my body how it actually reacts will depend on the terrain so if i'm walking on a hard ground let's say i'm i'm like blind i'm not looking i'm not thinking i'm being the absent minded professor i'm just walking on i, I was walking on some hard ground and then i start and i walked on to the beach and now i'm in sand what will happen i will put my foot down and i will lift it up in the with the same force that i was doing a few seconds ago but in the sand my foot sinks in so when i lift it up it won't with the same force it won't come up to the same extent and this is being sensed by my proprioceptive system and it tells me that something is different here so we have a certain desired effect we issue a command but what actually happens is different depending on the terrain you are and this discrepancy is the signal that we can use to adapt and you just throws a little bit of learning mumbo jumbo on top of it and we can make it work i mean i i think the intuition is basically what i explained then there are a few technical details but i i think i've given you 80% of the of the idea right here one of the things that really stood out to me watching the videos i'm not sure if you're able to to pull any up chitendra 
is the ability. I, I can do so, but maybe just after this question. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to deal with slash adapt to such a wide variety of terrains. It's just like experiment here, experiment there. Terrain changes every time. And somehow the robot has this completely different interaction because different friction, different inertia of maybe objects it's interacting with. And somehow it just stabilizes itself and keeps going. And I, th I think it's, it's really surprising how capable it is. In my mind, it's very reminiscent of some of the old Boston Dynamics videos in the sense that they were also very surprising how capable these robots were. But the difference is that this is just done by learning, not a whole year of engineering to get to the next terrain, let's say, or the next video that you can release. And so there's something magical here, I think, the fact that learning can achieve all this. And I wonder what it makes you think, like given learning can effectively achieve as much as was done with engineering at Boston Dynamics and possibly more, what do you extrapolate that to? What is going to become possible next? I think that maybe at this point for the viewers who are who can watch the thing, I would like to show some videos and then I'll answer your question. Sounds good. Okay. So just to talk over what's happening, here we have our robot dog and it's in the rocky area next to a riverbed on the Berkeley Merida and it's scrambling among these rocks and uh, it gets stuck but then it moves the foot over and manages to do that. And here's an example where it's going down some stairs on a hiking path. And the stairs are sort of concealed by a bunch of leaves, but yet it manages to recover and not fall. Here, the robot is trying to walk on a loose mud pile at a construction site. In all of these, the foothold is a bit unsteady, but it manages to make it through. And here's an example of, this is an indoor example with on some planks. And my student, Ashish, who was working on this, this was in the era of the pandemic. And he had the robot at home. And basically, he used to go to sleep with the robot next to him. And uh, these are experiments in his house where the robot is scrambling on a bunch of planks. And uh, it, it again, this is a setting where humans would be quite unsteady in their foothold. So these are all examples of how the kind of variability it can deal with. So let me stop here and return to your question. So what is the future? Hold on, hold on, hold on, Chitana. Before you return to the question, I just want to emphasize that all the different cases you showed, it's the same neural network controlling the robot, right? The same neural yeah. network knows how to adapt to all of these scenarios. Exactly. Thank you for making that clear. Yes, it's exactly the same policy in all the cases. It's not like, uh, you know, in the old style of computer programming, you have these if then else is, so if something do this, if something do something. No, here it's all the, exactly the same program. Now what's happening underneath the hood is that in these different terrains, some estimate of this external conditions is being estimated. We use the term latent, latent in extrinsics, and then essentially that guides the robot's walking behavior to change appropriately. So I think, Peter, before I started to show the videos, you were asking about what does this mean or what is the implication of this style relative to the more classical style which as represented by Boston Dynamics where you sit down and figure it out and write a control law? I'll make a little historical remark here. I think that if you look at the history of physics over time, if you look at physics in the 19th century, there were no computers then. So what a clever physicist had to do to understand a phenomena was essentially to write down differential equations. So, you know, Newton, Maxwell, I mean, 
the nature of physics was captured by these differential equations which described the phenomena. And that's the mindset which came into control theory. You have a physical system, so you describe the dynamics by some differential equations. Now, what are the practical issues here? The practical issues here are that these differential equations, they might require knowing something about the mass, something about the friction, and so forth, right? So the physics is correct, but the physics has all these unknown parameters. And these unknown parameters will actually keep changing. As I'm walking on stairs, leaves, mud, sand, I mean, these parameters keep changing. So even though in theory, the physicists have a way of understanding this going back a couple of hundred years, the practical implementation, I'm stuck with the, the issue that I don't know all these, all these parameters. Then there is the complexity of contact and making contact and breaking contact. So when you have legs, then there are some legs on the ground, some legs above the ground and Every one of these regimes requires a different model. So all of this, when you try to do it in an analytical style, which is the old style, you write down the equations, you design a controller, you do it on pen and paper, and then you just implement it on the computer. This style works well for simple systems, which are identified where we know these parameters. And this is great. See, this is, this is responsible for the successes of classical control. Man went on the moon. I mean, I think of the Apollo mission. And, uh, you know, you needed to make sure that the orbit around the moon was accurate. And these kinds of capabilities were provided by techniques derived from classical control theory. Now, in our current setup, what we have is this very complex system for which the model may not be written out in advance. And learning approaches, what they have the, the benefit is that they can deal with these unknowns as part of the learning process. So we are dealing with kind of identifying the system at the same time as you're learning a control law. And this is very powerful. To return to my analogy of physics, the classical physicists of the 19th century operated in a certain way. But what do the physicists of 20th century do? Or post-1960 or 1950 do? We have access to a computer. So you don't have to rely on an analytic solution of a differential equation. You can simulate the system and you can simulate the system and you can simulate it very accurately without having to make simplifying approximations. I mean, in statistics, same thing. An earlier generation of statisticians had to make these simplifying assumptions that, that n goes to infinity, there's some distribution which is Gaussian because that enabled you to make the math go through. Okay, if you take samples on a, with a computer, we don't have to make those approximations. So in my view, the power of the computer and simulation of the computer is that we no longer have to make the kind of simplifying assumptions which were needed to make the math go through for previous generations of physicists, statisticians, control engineers. So simulation is, is the answer in that sense. Now simulation, of course, relies on having that underlying physical model because there's no black magic here. But simulation benefits from Moore's law. Every year, the computers get faster. The technology for simulation gets a bit more accurate. So if you are relying on simulation, you're riding that curve. Whereas when I'm relying on writing down, being very clever in my head, I'm sort of relying on human ingenuity, which doesn't change that rapidly. So anyway, that's some kind of a intuition for why I, I'm very bullish on simulation.
not all colleagues in robotics agree. And there's this old line or old joke, which is that simulations are doomed to succeed. But I think that uh, you have to use simulations artfully. You have to know their limits. You have to have the right technique for transferring from simulation to real. But I believe that it has a major role to play in uh, advancing the state of the art in robotics. I personally, by the way, agree that simulation will play a very big role, at least for prototyping everything, and hopefully even for learning things that can then be transferred zero shot or few shot in the real world. The challenge I intend to run into in my own work and with simulation, I don't know what your take is, I'm curious to tell you, is that the simulators tend to have limited diversity compared to real world. And so it's hard to have the same kind of maybe general, you know, experience that the real world has somehow bring that into a simulator. Yeah, that's a valid point. And uh, but but I view this as a matter of time, because to me the ideal simulators it's not like a one shot process. I think it's a feedback loop. When we build a simulation, we are building essentially a model of ex the external world. Then we train a system in that we put it out into the real world, and then something doesn't go right. Well, that might tell us something to change in our simulation. So this is itself a, a cycle, which I think of as, it, as more or less the scientific process. Because in a way, I think of a simulator as a theory and the real world as an experiment. And science is about a theory and experiment, but it's not, never one way, it's a loop. So that diversity that you're seeking will emerge as we put more effort into this. And uh, in certain settings, we can do this by capturing reality. So some part of my work, and this was a little bit at Berkeley and a little bit with colleagues at Meta, has been about the simulation environments. Like we had one called Gibson, another one called Habitat, where what we did was we scanned real-world apartments and then put them inside the computer and then used that to study navigation strategies for a mobile robot. And it turns out that that way you get the, the statistics of the real world in some way. So simulation rests on a variety of technologies, all of which are getting better in my view. I mean, if you think of Hollywood movies, right? They have very good graphics. They have very good physical effects. So that surely tells us, at least they're good enough to fool us visually. So it tells us that maybe the prospects of this area are good. It doesn't work in all settings. I mean, there are colleagues who believe really in training in the real world. And I believe a little bit in that too. I mean, so I'm hedging my bets here. There are people in my group who do training in the real world and there are people in my group who do training in simulation. And I think the future is belongs to both. Talking about what's ahead, the robots you showed that you trained with rapid motor adaptation can navigate a wide range of terrains. Are there still terrains that they cannot handle? The examples I showed so far were for a blind robot. And this robot could not handle climbing stairs. It could handle climbing downstairs because you sort of just fall down and avoid falling. Climbing upstairs, it couldn't do. So for that, we found it necessary to introduce the use of vision. And if you don't mind, I'll show you some video on that. Yes, please. Okay. So this, what we are going to see now is a robot which walks and it has a camera. And on the right, you see what the camera sees. It's an RGBD camera. It has no advanced knowledge of the terrain. And it's trying to walk on a bunch of stools. So if it makes a mistake, it's going to just fall down. It's able to do that. Here is an example where it's trying to climb a bunch of 
stairs in the park. It's sort of struggling, but it manages quite effectively. And what's impressive here is that this is a relatively small robot dog. So the height of its legs is relatively small. And the stairs are a fairly big fraction compared to the height of the robot. And this is just a little observation, right? And people who have very small dogs in homes know this, that if a dog is very small, it has trouble with the stairs in the home. So here, the robot is struggling with this slope and it's about to fall, but it manages to retain its footholds. And then very soon it manages to make it. These examples were meant to illustrate where vision comes in. So when the terrain is really difficult, so if I have to cross a river, and to, I have to cross a river because there are some stones in the middle of the river, then I can put a foot on one stone, the next stone, and so on, and I can cross. I would not want to do that blind, right? I can walk on the beach blind. So our robot dog has this behavior that most of the time it can walk blind. And this is uh, like humans because blind humans can walk quite effectively. But where do blind humans have trouble? They have trouble with stairs. And what they do is they poke with their stick and get a sense of the height of the stair and so on and so forth. And generally, they feel more comfortable if they have assistance there. And what we show is that our robot dog with a use of a vision system can, in fact, manage these kinds of examples. So I think you asked me, what can we not do? I think quadrupedal locomotion is pretty close to solved, I would say. Bipedal locomotion is harder. So when you have Two feet versus four feet. Four feet are easier because balance is easier. So if you said to me, oh, what can we do with two feet? I mean, we can make, we have done versions of our of our model with for bipedal robots with two legs and they work, but somehow it doesn't seem like that problem is solved. And what's interesting here is that there seems to be a revival of interest in humanoid robots these days. And for humanoid robots, we'll need the ability to walk. And then, of course, if the robot is to be useful, the torso and the arms and hands have to be able to lift weights and do stuff. And there are a number of companies in that space. And I regard developing locomotion, bipedal locomotion, which is locomotion on two legs, as still still not a solved problem. I want to switch gears for a moment to Tendra. You spend most of your career, and still today, I imagine, some of your time in computer vision. And... I'm curious, what do you think of the current state of affairs in computer vision? Where are we at? Is it just a matter of scaling up a bit more? And what should we even scale up? Is it enough to do the you know, unsupervised learning and then things will just emerge? What is your personal thinking and intuition on, on the state of the field? So there are uh, what I would call the classic problems of core vision. I had a slogan for this. I used to call them the three R's of vision. One R is recognition. So you have an image and you have to say, does this have a chair or a dog or a cat? Okay. I had reconstruction, which meant going to 3D, recovering the 3D shape of an object or the spatial layout of the scene. And then the third R, which in order to make it three R's, I called it reorganization. But some people would call it segmentation or grouping which is taking the collection of pixels and breaking them up into individual objects, for example. These are the pixels which belong to a chair, these are the pixels which belong to a human, and so on. So for on these problems, we have seen remarkable progress. So recognition, I think that there's a lot of work which came out of Meta, my colleagues at Meta, and then there was preceding work over the decades that 
I don't have the time to get into, which shows that, you know, building building computer programs for recognizing cats and dogs and chairs, I mean, we can really do remarkably well here. And we can do this with thousands of categories. And further work in this area is really about scaling up. You know, it's just, we can do quite well. And if you give me, if you give me more data and more examples, more labeled examples, I can make it work. And of course, the practical settings of that remain. For example, think of somebody who works in medical image analysis and they want to diagnose some problem in someone's x-ray. We can use this methodology and just train some more, give some more examples and train a system. In terms of breaking up the image into objects, that's again a problem I've worked on for many years. But recently, for example, you have a system which came out of Meta called Segment Anything. And that, that uh, it was trained on millions or even a billion examples. And with that, that problem can be solved. The problem of 3D reconstruction, it's somewhat solved, but not fully solved, I would say. So the version which has, which, for which there are very good solutions are, if you have multiple views of one object, then this is what used to be called a structure promotion or SLAM. And now the preferred technology is something called NERF, neural radius fields, and that gives remarkable pictures. But I don't think the problem is solved at the level of what humans can do, which is even from a single image, we can solve it. So I regard the problem of recovering 3D from a single image as still, I mean, there are large parts, we have made progress, but large parts of it are not solved. But this is referring just to the core problems of vision qua vision. Vision doesn't exist for its own sake, right? Vision exists for something. And I think vision connects into two neighboring fields. One is robotics, which is vision for guiding action. And this is what I've chosen to pursue in the last five years. The other field to which vision connects is vision to cognition. And I can say for cognition, I would include language as a proxy. So models which deal with vision and language together. And this area is very open. I think there's been substantial progress, but there's a lot more to do. My first vision paper was four decades ago. 40, 1983 is when I wrote my first computer vision paper. And vision has seen tremendous strides, but I don't think of it as salt. There are these areas like the interaction between vision and language, long-range video understanding. I watch a movie and I want to understand what answer questions about the movie. And that will be a combination of language and visual reasoning. Obviously, the applications to robotics are real. How to manage with much less data. Humans somehow manage to train concepts with far fewer examples than we can in AI and machine learning. So there must be something there we, we are missing. So in my view, there is, there's still plenty to do in computer vision. One thing that also comes to my mind is this concept of adversarial examples in computer vision. Can you maybe expand on what they are and, and what are your current thoughts on them? Yeah. So these are examples which have attracted a lot of sort of uh, popular attention that you have, let's say, an image of a stop sign and then you you modify and, and this is an image. So you have pixels and brightness values and then you modify it a little bit, adding a, some imperceptible noise, if you will. But then you feed it to your computer program, your classifier, and it says this is a snake or something like that. And it's kind of remarkable. And we can explain these fairly easily because what's happening is that in these neural networks, they are classifiers, so they have a decision boundary. And so what that imperceptible noise is doing is 
modifying the image in a certain direction such that it fools the classifier. It just goes over the other side of the decision boundary. But humans are not fooled by that, right? A human looking at that image is not fooled by that. What that tells me is that the human process of interpreting an image is more sophisticated than just that, that, that simple classifier. So that's a worthwhile topic for us to study. I've not worked on this problem myself, but I'm going to just give a few throwaway remarks here. I, I feel that the right way to understand any image has both a bottom-up and a top-down component. So the top-down component is what we exercise when we dream. So when we are sleeping and we are dreaming, what's happening is concept somewhere in our brain go and there is some triggering of neurons and they in fact activate the visual cortex, almost similar to what it would be activated by actually seeing an image. So there is a top-down and a bottom-up component. The top-down component is sometimes connected to generative models. And there are many technical definitions here. I'm not sure what version will work out, but I feel that, that that's probably the way to solve these examples, that we need to have an understanding of any, of any image in a, both a top-down and a bottom-up way. Yeah, food for thought for uh, some researchers who are listening in here. One of the things you've done in computer vision to Tendra, in addition to many algorithmic insights and contributions, is you started to put emphasis on the importance of benchmarking now over two decades ago. How did you decide to start doing that? Why did you do that? And obviously it's had a lot of impact. How do you see that impact evolve as you started doing this? Yeah, so this, uh, this takes me back to about 2000 or something like that, or even earlier. And actually the context was a discussion at a conference. I was I had a I had a little debate at a panel with one of my colleagues called Olivier Fosheras, who was one of the the people who studied the geometry of computer vision, and he regarded uh, structure from motion SLAM as those are worthwhile, respectable problems because we have a clean mathematical formulation for them, but he regarded problems like segmentation and recognition as kind of, of sort of dubious quality, shall we say. And in particular, he said segmentation. Okay, everybody submits a paper and then they'll have some images and they'll say, these are the groups that my sister find and then we have to accept it and we are happy. And this is not a way of doing science. He was very much in the French tradition where you need to have mathematical formalisms and so on. So I came back from that trip and I was determined to prove him wrong. And so the way to think about it was, how do other sciences, for which there are no precise mathematical models, do this? So like psychology and so on. They do experiments with humans. So therefore, the natural thing here was, let's think about experiments with humans. So we can show images to people and we can have people mark the boundaries of objects. And if humans are consistent in this, well, that means that we have a scientifically valid problem to work on. So this was one big motivation. Another motivation, interestingly, was that I had a student at that time, David Martin, who had previously worked in computer architecture, and he was a, he'd been a student of Dave Patterson, who was one of our computer architects, famous computer architects and Turing Award winners from Berkeley. And in the field of computer architecture, they believed a lot in benchmarking. And they, because when any, when any new hardware comes, you run the same pieces of code and you try to classify, get the number of flops. 
So these trends sort of came together in some way. And so we, what we did was we said, okay, let's get a set of images together. And you know I'm, what I'm going to do, Peter? I'm going to show you what I did. Okay. Here is a stack of CDs. This is from 2000. This was a Corel. There's a, a, at that time, you couldn't get images on the web. There were not that many images on the web. The internet was still in its infancy. So we bought this collection of CDs. And in each of these CDs, okay, I mean, do people even recognize what these are? <laughs> I don't know. Each of these contains a certain number of images, but you can load them on the computer. And then what we could do is we could have undergrads come and mark the boundaries of objects and see consistency. And then we use that as a way of actually studying the statistics of natural images and to define for this task of finding boundaries of objects, what was human truth which even if it was not consistent, it was, even if it was not 100% consistent, it was say 90% consistent. And then this became, also became data for training machine learning algorithms. So it did a number of things. It promoted the use of data, it promoted the benchmarking, and it promoted understanding the image as a, the collection of images, what's the manifold of images and so forth. And of course, I, I don't want to take the only credit for this mode of thinking. And gradually, this mode of thinking became more and more common in computer vision. I give also a lot of credit to Pietro Perona, who was at Caltech and who was formerly my student at Berkeley. But Pietro led the collection, first collection of images from the web. Uh, which was like, there's a collection called Caltech 101, which was used for object recognition. There was Andrew Zissman in uh, Britain who did this, and there was a Pascal program. Antonio Toralba uh, at MIT, uh, Alyosha Efros, who also pushed a lot of data, the importance of data, Fei Li, who came in with ImageNet. So sometime between 2000 and 2010, the paradigm changed. It used to be that publishing a paper with a data set would be really difficult. And by 2010, it became that, no, this is, this is the way we make our field scientific. Now, of course, if you think about modern era AI, it's all driven by deep learning. And the big breakthrough in deep learning was an image recognition. Deep learning had been around for decades, maybe not under that name, but neural nets been around for decades. But image recognition breakthrough on the ImageNet challenge, a benchmark that found its way from these early days of starting benchmarking in vision and I hear you have, you know, you've been part of the story there. Why Jeff and then and his students ran things on ImageNet? Can you say a bit more about that, Chitendra? Yes, that this is a fun story. So this is somewhere around 2011 or something like that, 2011, 2012, in this era. I was sitting in my office in Berkeley campus and, it, and the phone rang and I picked up the phone. Normally, you don't pick up phones these days because... These are usually uh, some random spam caller. I picked up the phone and it was Jeff Hinton. And I know him from ages, from the 80s. I mean, we are both old timers in the field. And Jeff didn't start the conversation with asking about the weather. Jeff's first question is, Jitendra, why don't you like deep learning? <laughs> he was very direct. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I need to be direct back. So I said, oh, because you haven't proved the point. You haven't made the case. So then he said, oh, but we have these results on MNIST and CIFAR. And this and that. I said, those are, you know, little baby data sets and I'm not going to be convinced by them. 
So then, I mean, we need something with the complexity of natural images and so on. So he said, oh, okay. So I said, oh, for example, we have this Pascal challenge for object detection. And if you get good results on that, then that would be impressive. He said, okay, let me think. Then he hung up and he called me back the next day and he said, Pascal, I know you guys like Pascal, but I don't think it has enough images for the techniques that we have. On the other hand, ImageNet, which also has come in, that has a lot more images. And I feel that that's more promising. What do you think of that? So I said, yeah, I'd be impressed by ImageNet results. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back and I'll make a couple of students work on this problem. And if we have something to show, I'll call you. <laughs> well, as they say, the rest is history. So that was Alex Krzyzewski and Ilya Sutskeva. And uh, of course, there's a hidden variable here, which is that GPUs had come on the scene. They played a role in this. So this accomplishment, I mean, there, there were GPUs, there was data, there was deep learning, putting it all together. And then the results of this methodology were very were much better than the classical computer vision technique. And these results were presented at ECCV in, uh, in a workshop in Florence. And I remember we were all there in the room and there are times when you see history being made right there. And Alex had presented his results. And then we had a little argument. Jan Lekun was in the room. I was in the room. Alyosha Efros was in the room. And we were arguing about, is this real? What does it mean? And then history, of course, is very clear about what happened. Talk about history and where things are going. Where do you see AI go in the near future? Where do you see maybe exciting applications that could emerge that could really impact humanity in a great way? I, I think all across the place, right, obviously. But let me state some of my favorite ones. So I think medicine, healthcare, I mean, these are these are very important. I mean, and these will not be completely transferred to AI, but sort of the use of a human and a machine together. For example, in diagnosing X-ray images, I'm picking an example which is closest to my own competence. I've worked on things like that before. And these can be very, you know, remarkable and democratizing. So think of like some blood sample, which you can take a photo. Taking a photo is easy now, right? Cameras are ubiquitous. Everybody, even in a less developed country, in a poor country, people have access to phones and cameras. And can you use them in some way? So there was a project I knew about, which was in India, where in these underserved hospitals, you take a photo of a kid who's just been born. And from that, you can estimate the weight. You can estimate aspects of it was the child stunted in growth and so on and so forth. And then, I mean, equally in America where, uh, you know, 18% of our GDP goes to health. So that's that's a big area. I think of elder care. I mean, I have very old parents myself. I mean, we know that now post-retirement people live long lives and then their lives, the quality of the lives would be improved considerably if they had assistance at home. I mean, not everybody will be able to afford to have attendance all the time. It's just not possible for the economy to support that. But robot assistance could play a major role. I'm picking examples which are close to my interests of vision and robotics, but of course, there are ones all over the, all over the place. And I want to say one thing because there is always, whenever there's a discussion of AI, there's a discussion of AI taking jobs and so on. And I'm not worried about that personally. I mean, and the reason is that I think that we have seen the effect of computerization over time, but it takes a lot of time for the systems to adapt. And when the process is gradual, it goes through a process where initially you have humans and machines working together, then the 
first the machine is just assisting the human then the human and machines works together then there is some part which is completely outsourced to the machine the human then starts to do something more creative and fun and so on i mean if you think about programming once upon a time people had to program in in assembly language and machine with instructions i have programmed a machine in the 1970s by pushing certain buttons to you know load the <laughs> to to bootstrap the program and then we get to higher level languages and even more so and then okay now we we use uh, you know a, a gpt to help us with getting a lot of the standard verbiage of the code ready so when was ever there this mass unemployment of programmers i don't think we have seen that even i mean we've just what the productivity has meant is that we could now apply these techniques across many more settings it would not have been worthwhile to do it in 1950s given the effort of programming there were many many applications you would simply not have tried to computerize but we are willing to i'm not a professional economist but as an ai researcher i have to think about the consequences of my work and i tend to think that it will be in conjunction with humans and it's not something to worry about in that same way i see a lot more upside than downside akuma thinking about humans when a new phd student comes to you or a prospective phd student chats with you at a conference maybe what kind of advice do you give them if they want to embark on you know their ai research career trajectory i always believe that people need to have a portfolio of skills there is something where they should be broad and some ways in which they should be narrow and like a t i mean sometimes people call a t model right there are some technical skills you need to master right if you can write a pytorch model or tensorflow model okay you need to understand obviously the basic math of machine learning basic coding abilities and so on so there is a basic cool technical skills that are essential but then there is a certain breadth of knowledge which i also appreciate and i always tell my students that try to think a bit outside the box i mean if you are doing computer vision maybe also read the literature on perception maybe read the literature on neuroscience maybe talk to people in computer graphics you know even art you know because our field connects to so many other disciplines i mean ai broadly does i think people who are more broad minded can contribute more over a longer scale of time i think it's very important of course to be very adaptable i think that if you insist that oh here is a technique which i once learned and i i was good at it and i could write 15 papers with it and if you just stay with that you are doomed to extinction so being adaptable is useful not just for walking robots but also for researchers i have in my career had to adapt many times given up modes of thought which i regarded as as great and ones where i was really good at and I'd spent you know years studying differential geometry and then became irrelevant fine you know you move on so and then above all in any research enterprise i think passion is important the best researchers in my view they they sort of love what they're doing and you sort of have to feel that you want to to do something and you love this and you want to read up all about it and make something happen and when i see that in a student i i feel okay this is great Well, let's talk about your trajectory to Tandra. As I understand it, you grew up in India. Where in India did you grow up? So, I grew up in a city called Jabalpur, which is in central India. So, I finished high school there and then I went to uh, IIT Kanpur, which is kind of in the north near Delhi, and I was an electrical engineering uh, major as an undergrad. I was trained in classical electrical engineering, but 
we're talking about 1975 to 1980s when I was an undergrad. At that time, computers were still sort of, you know, not so common. I got excited by reading about uh, computers and I took a few classes. But at that time, I got into thinking about AI because I, I just read articles in Scientific American and I thought, wow, I mean, this is a grand goal. And then I applied to graduate school and I got into Stanford by some, you know, fluke. Uh, I was very surprised that they admitted me. But anyway, so I came to Stanford and while I started out in programming languages and architecture and that kind of stuff, very within a quarter, I'd switched to AI. And uh, in fact, I switched to working with the person who coined the term AI, John McCarthy. So he was my advisor. I read the literature of classical AI, which was very much, uh, Stanford was very much the center of logic-based AI. And uh, John McCarthy was the god of that. I mean, McCarthy had coined the term artificial intelligence, and his view was that the way we are going to solve the intelligence problem is that we are going to represent facts about the world using first-order logic, and then we'll do logical inference, and uh, you could convert planning to be an inference problem, you could conclude deducing new facts about the world as an inference problem, and so on, and that's what he believed in. Now, there was a little niggling problem at that time, which John McCarthy recognized, which was that in common sense reasoning, you have this problem that you give new facts and then your belief in old facts changes. So the classic example is Tweety is a bird. Can Tweety fly? Your answer is yes, it can fly. But then if somebody tells you, but Tweety is a penguin, then you say, oh, okay, maybe it can't fly. And then maybe somebody tells you Tweety is a mechanical penguin with motor and wings, then maybe it can fly. But then somebody tells you, well, what if the motor is broken down? And so on. So humans have this ability in common sense reasoning to change our assertions. Now, this is not a problem for probabilistic reasoning, right? In Bayesian reasoning with any new evidence, you change your beliefs. But in classical logic, this is a problem. But McCarthy wanted a solution to this problem in classical logic. And this is the problem he assigned me to work on. And it is a very hard problem and nobody can, I haven't solved, I didn't solve it. Nobody has solved it. And after a few years, I was just getting very frustrated. And then I met Rod Brooks. This is Rodney Brooks, who's a well-known roboticist. And he was also a student at Stanford. And then somehow over a beer, he told me that all this logic stuff is nonsense. What you really should work on is his vision or robotics. And he actually told me about Moravec's paradox. And this is at like 2 a.m., 1 a.m. at this pub near Stanford. And I was like, I mean, it, 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 it really shook me because I had believed that the important stuff was all this logic and reasoning and, and all of that. And here was somebody saying, no, what matters is what a cat can do. But I, was, I got convinced. And pretty soon after that, I abandoned my thesis with John McCarthy. I switched to working in computer vision with Tom Inford. So essentially, I abandoned my PhD two and a half years in. But it was the best decision or one of the best decisions I made. I think marrying my wife was probably my best decision, but this is close. And that's amazing, right? Two and a half years in, making a switch in what you're doing for your PhD, I think it's it's probably very rare. I don't think too many people do it. I think a lot of people say, what if I just work another year and a half and I'll just wrap it up and you know call it done? But you were, in some sense, in your early words, maybe too passionate about wanting to do something really meaningful in AI that you were willing to say, well... I'll take the sunken cost, <laughs> I'll take it, and I'll just restart. It's amazing. Now, from Stanford, 
you came to Berkeley, as I understand. Yeah. So one of the first, I think, AI professors at Berkeley, or at least modern AI professors at Berkeley at the time. Yeah, that's right. So at that time, there was, I mean, there was Shankar Shastri, who had, was a control theorist who had switched to trying to do robotics. So he was a colleague. And then uh, there was Robert Wilensky and Rothfi Zade, who represented certain schools of classical AI. But then I was the young kid who was hired. Next year, Stuart Russell was hired. And the following year, John Canney was hired. And Ron Fearing was hired. And that was the beginnings of AI and robotics at Berkshire. We are all uh, sort of young assistant professors trying to create a field in a department which didn't really have much activity in this area before. Now, quite a cohort and obviously quite a successful AI presence you built out at Berkeley. Fast forwarding many years, you have graduated over 70 PhD students, postdocs to all the top universities, to the top industry research labs. And that li lighter thing is what I want to touch upon. You've also taken on a position in industry. How do you see the synergy between or maybe complementarity between industry and academic research for AI specifically? Yes, this is a serious question because at the last CVPR, we had a panel discussion where there were some academic colleagues who were worried that is academic research losing its relevance? And the concern came from, you know, a model like GPT-3 or GPT-4. It's really not possible to train such a model in an academic lab. And uh, I view academia and industry as not in conflict, but complementary to each other. And here are some of the ways. Okay, so the most obvious one is in academia, we take very raw talent, right? A beginning PhD student over five years, we make them into somebody who knows a lot, who's had the confidence of building something and, and can go out and, you know, do great things. So industry cannot survive without the people that academia trains. Then the kind of research that can happen in, in industry, there are a variety of modes of that research. And since I spent I spent some time with at Google and then I've spent time at Meta. At that time, it was called Facebook AI Research Fair. So there are different modes of industrial research and maybe I'll just speak to that. So there's a mode of academic research in industry, which is just like academia, which is uh, individual investigators, maybe two, three people working together. They have some idea, they implement something, they do some experiments, write a paper. But then you also have the possibility of these bigger teams, right? And this is a mode which, for example, DeepMind has had and OpenAI has had, where you have a large team of people who work towards one one project and you put a lot of, what's the phrase, a, a lot of wood behind that arrow and you have a critical mass and now you can build something much bigger. In my view, both modes are important. So I like to think of it as small science and big science. And if you think of this, there's an analogy to physics and some of you may have seen, some of the people may have seen the movie Oppenheimer. So in Oppenheimer, a very prominent character is Lawrence, Ernest Lawrence was a physics professor at Berkeley, and he built a cyclotron. And he started this tradition of big science. Because before that, before if you look at physics papers before 1930, you never have papers with multiple authors. I mean, maybe one, maybe two. And now you have, now today you have these papers in high energy physics with a thousand authors. And really, it started with Lawrence at Berkeley. Because to build this equipment and then now you could accelerate particles fast enough and then that led to discoveries. But people had to get together. They could no longer hope to work one person by themselves. So I think the same is true for our field. We need to acknowledge that our field has both AI as a 
small science component and a big science component. And both need to be pursued. It's not either or. Small science can do exploration a bit more readily. Big science can do exploitation more readily. Given the current structure of the field, there'll be more small science in universities and big science in companies. But it's not necessary. See, if you look at physics, when they do work on the Large Hadron Collider, it's all academic research. But it is big science. So a bunch of universities create a consortium. That's my belief. I'm not, I think that it's complementary and I value both small science and big science and just focusing on one or the other will be a mistake. You talk about passion for research and I will say, I, I feel like I've, I've never encountered you not being passionate and, and pretty busy getting research done or, or teaching for that matter. But do you ever take time off and what do you do to relax? I like walking. So sometimes just going on a walk. I like going to museums. So I, I like traveling. So I don't often have time for that, but I like going to museums in Rome and London and Paris and things like that. I like reading about lots of things. Some, I think these are probably my biggest outside activities, uh, you know, walking, hiking, traveling, reading. I'm not super good at any sports, unfortunately. So, <laughs> so that's, uh, I, I wish I was. Yeah, not at music. I can listen to music, but I cannot create it. If you'd been good at a uh, sport, maybe you wouldn't have been here now to do AI research. So it might have <laughs> been a blessing. Um, when you're reading, uh, are you reading fiction? Are you reading scientific books in other disciplines? What are you reading? I'm I'm pretty uh, omnivorous. I read everything. I've I've read a lot of fiction, like I don't know mystery novels, Sherlock Holmes. I can quote lines from Sherlock Holmes readily. Okay. I like reading history a lot. I find history a lot of fun and I like scientific history as well. And I'll, let me give an argument for that. And why I try to in, encourage students also to read the history. See, because history gives us, you know, there, there are many aspects of life where you never have exactly the same situation repeat, right? History is that. But you can find nearest neighbors, Right. So you can find, if you are in a situation, you can think, okay, here was a similar situation faced at this point in time. And this is true in the course of human history, you know, when we talk about kingdoms and empires and wars and revolutions. And we can talk about it also in the history of science. And sometimes we, we now are looking at a field like physics and we think of it as so beautiful and mature. But physics wasn't like that 300 years ago. Or biology, it wasn't like that. 50 years or 100 years ago, and things were very uncertain and there were these debates and there were absolutely wrong ideas and so on. And when I look at that, it gives me some inspiration and confidence about AI. I think AI today is like on everybody's tongue. We see it in the newspapers. But when I started in the field, which was in the 80s, it was like this little discipline which was kind of tolerated in a computer science department because, I mean, mostly they thought that this was just talk and it was never going to be real. But so how do you have the confidence to persist in a field when it, it's really not able to deliver yet? I think by historical analogy, by saying, oh, these other fields were also sort of kind of very embryonic and they didn't work. And... Uh, I think when I try to project the future of AI, I do the same. I think we sometimes, we worry about, oh, oh, we maybe extrapolate very quickly. We think, oh, suddenly this will happen. There's this old line that in the short term, we always overestimate how quickly things will get done. And in the long term, we, we don't because there'll be discoveries which come out from somewhere which we have never not even dreamt of. 
So that historical perspective actually grounds even my research. I, I get some inspiration from that. Besides, history is fun. It's like lots of cool stories, but they actually happened. Yeah. The thing I really enjoy reading is, I don't know if you'd call it history, but it's biographies. Yeah. That is history. I, I put that in the same category. Well, Jitendra, thanks so much for making the time. Really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. No, this was wonderful, uh, Peter. Thanks for taking the time. And it was, I, I enjoyed myself immensely. 